I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. This episode's guest is Roy Yamaguchi, the founder of Roy's Restaurants, Tavern by Roy Yamaguchi, and Eating House 1849. Roy was born and raised in Japan, but now lives in Hawaii. He's a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America and worked for famous restaurants such as Le Escoffier, Le Hermitage, and Michael's. He's also a television personality who starred in six seasons of Hawaii Cooks with Roy Yamaguchi. He has won many awards, including the James Beard Best Pacific Northwest Chef in 1993. I have had some of the best meals of my life because of Roy. Oh my God, for example, I once had a tomahawk steak at his restaurant that changed my life. He and I get a little deep discussing local boy eating in Hawaii. I don't want you to miss anything on your next trip to Hawaii, so in addition to eating at Roy's, be sure you check out Coco Head Cafe, K-O-K-O is how you spell Coco, Koa Pancake House, K-O-A is how you spell Koa, and Zippies. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People, and now, here's Roy Yamaguchi. I was born and raised in Japan on an army base, U.S. Army base. So I was brought up a lot of GIs, military family. And then, because uh, my father was from Hawaii, born on Maui, but ended up in Okinawa, married my mother, and moved to Japan. But since he was a civil servant and, and not a really a career military man, he was able to be stationed in Japan for a long time. So I was born and raised there, U.S. US military base. And then one day... I took home ec in high school. and you took uh, home ec in yeah, high school? Yeah, I, I took home ec in high school. And I had invited my uh, school counselor and for this lunch that I had prepared, roast turkey and stuff. So he goes, hey, Roy, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? So I said, I'm not really sure. <laughs> he goes, after eating your turkey that I had made, he goes, hey, you may have a career in cooking. <laughs> really? Yeah. So he goes, I want you to come to my office New Haven, back then it was in New Haven, Connecticut, had just moved to New York and Hyde Park, upstate New York. And if you want to go, we'll, we'll see what we can do. So I said, yeah, why not? <laughs> you know, he did the, most of the paperwork and I went to some, some teachers and, that I had. And I said, hey, I need some recommendation letters and put it all together. And uh, applied for the Culinary Institute of America, CIA. And actually they were full, so I got declined. So my father goes, hey, Roy, since we're applying from Japan, why don't you apply as a uh, Japanese citizen? So I said, okay. But anyways, make the long story short, applied and got in. And then spent a couple of years in, in upstate New York at this culinary, a great school. It's like the Harvard of cooking school, and it's the best cooking school in the world. Went there, graduated, and ended up in Los Angeles and started working in different restaurants. Did your parents I mean obviously I'm Asian American you're Asian American they didn't get disappointed you didn't go to college you didn't become a doctor a lawyer a dentist you became a chef it you know was, what was cool with them you know what I'll be honest with you you know what my my dad was because when I was uh you know like maybe sophomore in high school and stuff I was thinking about really just moving from Japan and just going to Los Angeles and going to a like a trade school and, and there was a school called 
LACC, uh, Los City College. So I was going to go there. And so when I told my dad I was going to go to cooking school, he just said, hey, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> he was happy I was going to do something else other than just go to a, a city college and not know what I was going to you know, do for the rest of my life. So he said, hey, if you're focused and doing something like cooking, but on the other hand, I have to tell you because back in the early 40s, my grandfather owned a restaurant in Maui. And my father had worked helping him when he was a child. So he, he kind of knew the restaurant business and my father loved to cook. So I think that with all of that in mind, he was very, very happy that I actually pursued cooking because that was my father's love. After work, my father would come home after a hard day's work and my mother would have some Japanese uh, tsukemono or some sunamono, pickled cucumbers and stuff like that on the table. And my father would sit there and read the paper and have his beer. And after that, he would start making dinner for us, right? So cooking was in the family. And my grandfather, same thing. When I used to visit my grandparents on Maui during the summertime, my grandfather would take us and go to the different farms and he would go to the this, yeah, I don't know where, where these places were because I was really young, but all I know is that he would buy a chicken and he plucked the feathers and drained the blood and all of that stuff. And that night, we would have chicken hiccup. And, and that's the way we were brought up. So I think my father was extremely happy. Oh. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> plus, plus, I would have never made it as an attorney or, or I, I didn't have the brain. So. <laughs> I, I went to law school for two weeks and quit. So. <laughs> so at the age of 19, you were already a master chef from CIA? Well, not, no, not master How chef, but work? so, so what, what happened was at the age of 19, I had art. So I started uh, cooking school when I was, when I just turned 18, it's a two year school to get an AOS. So I spent two years at school. So when I graduated from cooking school, I was still 19 years old. And, uh, and you get a degree, you get an AOS degree. At that time, I was just starting out. So I was just a cook. I mean, you can be a chef, but I, I would consider myself more of a cook because when you go to cooking school, you get the foundation. So that's a building block to me. So from there on, you can step up. So I was fortunate enough to graduate from um, CIA. And then I got a job in, you know, different places. But the first place I got a job was at this country club and uh, L.A. Country Club. And I was working on the buffet line, serving uh, stewed tomatoes <laughs> and <laughs> beef stew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then at the same time, I was working at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. And, and luckily, I got a job on, on the top floor at the Escoffier Room, French restaurant, uh, peeling potatoes and making green beans into string beans. <laughs> and you put the green beans into this little machine and you can't hand crank and it comes out like a string bean. So anyways, did that. But after a couple of months, I got fired from both places because they said that I had replaced somebody that came back so they didn't really need me anymore. And the country club, they said the same thing, that the person that I filled in for is back to work again. So sorry, we don't have a place for you. So what year is this? That was in 1970, oh. 76. So it wasn't World War II or anything, obviously. So. <laughs> you weren't interned, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, so, so then I was uh, out of both two jobs, and then I took the bus and went to different places and interviewed and ended up getting a job in the Scandinavian restaurant <laughs> in Beverly Hills. So it was, I mean, that was a trip. It was, it was pretty cool, but, you know, you know it's... 
things happen and you know you learn different types of other cuisine so it was good so along this journey do you have heroes what chefs inspired you i've been very fortunate because when i was at cia there was two instructors or should i say more of the more in administration but there was a gentleman by the name of uh, joseph amandola who was a baker and uh, but he was one of the vice presidents for the school and leroy folsom duke folsom who was also in the administration but he's a great chef and these two individuals and it's kind of crazy because when i was at school there was three Japanese guys in the entire school, and we all got dormed together. Yeah, <laughs> right? Coincidence. <laughs> so we're in this one dorm, but these two other guys were older, and they had traveled a lot, and they were cooking wasn't their thing, but they just, I don't know, ended up in cooking school. I had gone to cooking school to become hopefully a chef or to advance in the cooking world. So I was kind of housed with them. So we had nowhere to go. I mean, I had nowhere to go because I didn't have any money. I didn't have any money to go anywhere other than stay in my dorm. But they had gone to Washington D.C. because they were from D.C. earlier before going to CIA. But so so I stayed in the dorm. But these two uh, gentlemen, uh, Mr. Folsom and Mr. Amendola, invited me to their house, and they would say, "Okay, why don't you come for Christmas or Thanksgiving?" And, and you can be with our family, but you have to do one thing, and that is to help us cook. So I would get a task, so like he would say, okay, uh, why don't you cook uh, mashed potatoes or help make the mashed potatoes? And I was like, wow, I was overwhelmed because I thought to myself, well, wow, this is pretty cool stuff. But still at the same time, I had to perform, right? <laughs> help, you know, I didn't make mashed potatoes in this gentleman's house, and he's one of the big wigs of the, the, the culinary, and he had written, uh, a bunch of books for the culinary and that's how I used to spend my my, my holidays and uh, spending time with these great chefs and one day even like uh, Duke Folsom goes hey Roy after you graduate what are you gonna do I said I don't know I'm gonna go work in a French restaurant I guess and he goes why French I said I don't know I mean sounds kind of sounds pretty good right and he goes no just whatever whatever restaurant you think can give you a lot of I guess a lot of happiness you should pursue not just French but any type of cooking so these were gentlemen that heavily helped me or kind of mentored me in a different way way back when when I was 19 or 18 years old 18 and 19 years old and uh, and then after that worked in a lot of different restaurants and uh, I would have to say that my biggest uh, impact was at L'Hermitage I had worked in this French restaurant because, you know, I was, again... That's a back. big deal, right? Yeah, I was like, oh, wow, man. So Escoffier was French, but yet it was it was more... It wasn't... It was more of a manufactured restaurant, whereas L'Hermitage was really, really personal. The chef, Jean Bertrandu, Michel Boulanger, the chef, they were all great individuals. They were real warm, and they wanted to help you, and they wanted to work with you, and... They would show me things and with their hands, they would kind of develop me from just being a uh, walk-in uh, kind of cook. And, and when I left there, I was a sous chef, I was an assistant chef, but they're the ones who really molded me. When I did something great, they praised me, but even like the, the chef owner, John Bertrandu, used to work side by side with me on a busy night and tell me, hey, this and that and this and that and this and that. And it was, it was some cool stuff. And their colleagues, their friends, were all the great chefs from France 
Chef Bocuse, Verger, Toigro, Marc Menot, all these great chefs from France were, were these guys' buddies, and they would come to L'Hermitage to cook. So I have to say that when it comes to cooking, these were my mentors. And of course, you know, my dad was always a gun-ho type of guy. And I mean, I didn't, hit, hit, and my dad and I really didn't see eye to eye when we were growing up. But, <laughs> but at the end of the day, my dad was a hard worker, extremely hard worker. His whole thing was work, 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 work. Then play, 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 play. <laughs> <laughs> but work was really extremely important. And uh, he, he kind of instilled that, that, hey man, if you don't work, you're not going to get nothing out of life. So you better just dive into it and put your head down and just take the lickings and just go for it. So. specials about Gordon Ramsay and he's ripping everybody and what it, do you think hey that's the real world man that's how it is at the end of the day circumstances to me are extremely important and timing is, is extremely important and to me when you're teaching somebody there's two ways to teach right of course with hand-on you nurture someone but at the same time when someone does something wrong you have to let them know and time is the uh, of the essence. And if something sucks, I mean, you have to let them know that it sucks. It is not acceptable. And, and you know, you can't take eight hours to explain to someone, hey, listen, this is not acceptable. But it, start over again. And I was taught in a way, like in, in, in a Hell's Kitchen environment. That's the way that I was taught. Hey, listen, if it's no good, it gets thrown away, you start over again. There's no, you hold your hand and say, you got to make it better. This sucks. There's people waiting at the table for a great meal. And if you can't produce it, well, we got to find somebody else to produce that meal. So I can understand that. And at the same time, believe it or not, Gordon Ramsay is an incredible human being. He's a very, very personable, uh, caring individual. But <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. So it's under the circumstances of TV, and, and maybe I, I'm not sure. I've never been in, in, in an environment in a, in a restaurant. I've been in, in a show with him and stuff, but I've never been in, a, in his restaurant where, where he's, you know, commanding and stuff. And maybe, maybe, maybe it could be different. I don't know. <laughs> is, is that how you are here? No, no, no. I mean, I used, to be, I used to be a lot more aggressive in the kitchen because I understand because, hey, listen, at the end of the day, we're all about time. It's all about time because if you can't produce fast enough, people get angry. It doesn't matter how great food is. You have to do it in a timely manner and you have to set the tone. So there's people that have been anxiously waiting to have dinner. And of course, you have to pace it, right? I mean, people want to be, don't want to be rushed, but at the same time, they can't wait forever. So we in the kitchen have to observe that and know that a customer, our guest, are here to have a great experience, but we have to make sure, what is that? We have to be able to read that and say to, to us, okay, what does that guest really want? Is it more time, less time? 
perfection in the meal, great service, what is it? So if we want to deliver all of that, we have to understand that and then be able to deliver that in a timely fashion, greatness in a timely fashion. How does one go about winning a James Beard Award? James Beard Award is like, you know, of course, the Oscars in the cooking world. And uh, I guess there's a bunch of uh, so-called individuals that are in different cities that would nominate you. And after the nomination is there, there's a bunch of other ones that might write in, whether it be professionals or whether it be individuals that dine a lot or they're gourmands in different cities. And things have always changed and, you know, are ever evolving in, in that type of business when it comes to nominations and stuff. But back in 1995 or something is, is when I won the James Beard Award. So I was the first recipient of the James Beard Award for Hawaii. And to date, there's only been three award winners. So myself, who was the first, and then uh, Chef Alan Wong and Chef Marlboro. So the three of us have won the James Beard in Hawaii. And hopefully there'll, there'll be more. But um, when I wanted, it was Best Chef Pacific Northwest and then Hawaii. And then later on, they threw California in there. So it became a little harder or a lot harder to, to get the award. And now it's, I think, back to California, back to Hawaii, and I think Washington and Oregon, the Northwest and stuff. So hopefully there'll be more James Beard Award winners from Hawaii because there's a lot of great talent in Hawaii. So hopefully we'll be able to see more. So, And, and when you win an award like that, does life change? Does your restaurant immediately become immensely popular? Well, the life really doesn't change, but at the same time, there's a lot more recognition. And, and it's recognition from your colleagues and your peers. So, I mean, it's a great award because then it's, it's like when you win the award, it's like them saying, hey, listen, Roy, you know what? You've done great work. And we want to tell everybody that you've been doing a lot of a lot of great work, and we want to make sure that we substantiate that by by letting people know. So you get, of course, uh, you get the you get the ribbon, and uh, with that, of course, you have to maintain, right? Because you, you just can't win it and you know one you know walk away or something. But when you when you win that award, there's a lot of pride that goes into it. So you want to continually do a great job, but. Yeah, you get recognized for, you know, the outstanding work that you've been doing. So it substantiates all the great stuff you've been doing. So to me, it was more, it was, because I didn't get a chance to go to the James Beard Award Gala when they nominated me and when they gave me the award. So when I got the award, I wasn't there to receive the award. So I wish I would have had a chance to at least <laughs> go on stage and grab the award or something. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, it's been great because a lot of people will say, hey, I didn't know, I didn't know you were a James Beard Award winner because you can get nominated. And there's a lot of nominations, but to really actually win the award, there's, there's, there's not that many, right, every year. So I take it with pride and I take it with a lot of, a lot of uh, okay. goodness with it. Yeah. How would you describe your style of cooking? What would you call it? And how? And then how would you explain it? Yeah, so it's one of these things where if you try to explain it real fast, it just never works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so at the end of the day, it's a wine fusion. And, and fusion is, you know, a lot of, when I first started, people go, hey, you shouldn't call it fusion because there's a lot of negativity in fusion. But at the end of the day, it's all about learning cultures. I was born in Japan, learned Japanese, born in Japanese culture, the American culture. 
And then at the same time, learning about the French and the different types of cultures that I blend the f my food with. So making French sauces is, is what I love to do. But at the same time, as I continue to evolve and I started to add Chinese or Korean, uh, Vietnamese or, or the, the countries in Southeast Asia, etc. But to me, I learn about the culture and, and learn about the types of food that they wanted to make whether it be spicy or whether it be more on the uh, subdued side, stuff like that. And then when I start to kind of make my own style of cooking, which was more Japanese and French in the very, very beginning, right? And I started to add more cultures. I try to understand and the end result's got to be there, meaning that you just can't start mixing things and, you know, whatever happens, happens. But to me, I have an end result but I try to figure out how I can get to that end result, meaning that I want to have French sauces. I want to have uh, a very colorful plate as much as possible. I want to have a balance of whether it be spiciness or sweetness, uh, a little saltiness, making sure that all the different ingredients I put in there becomes round, meaning that there's a certain flavor that I want to achieve. And if it's a sauce at the end, I want to make sure I get there. So at the end of the day, it's called Hawaiian fusion because I want people to have a Hawaii state of mind, but yet it's, I can call it Euro-Asian or whatever. Getting the Asian flavors with the French sauces and the Hawaii state of mind. And then at the same time now, because of the Hawaii regional cuisine movement, I want to make sure that I try to add as much local ingredients as possible. Sometimes it's not 100% possible only because the amount of business the restaurant might do and the amount of ingredients we need for a certain dish. But some dishes could be 90% local ingredients. Some could be 100, some could be 50, uh, depending on the type of dish we want to make. And because some of the times a guest may be craving for scallops, right? And there's no scallops in, in Hawaii. So in order to have a scallop dish, which is the main item, naturally it can't be 100% Hawaiian, right? Or local ingredients. So depending on what we want to accomplish is depending on what we use. So at the end of the day, you know, Hawaiian fusion, Hawaiian state of mind, local ingredients, but yet French, and a lot of Asian cultures mixed in. How does it go from an idea to the menu? Is there testing? I can tell you how that's done in tech. Yeah, okay. How, how yeah, does it yeah. go from Roy says, okay, I'm going to palehu ribs and... Yeah. At the end of the day, what happens is I can visualize a certain dish and, and, and I can visualize what I really want. So I say to myself, okay... I want to make a salmon dish or I want to make a beef dish or I want to make a um, whatever it may be. And then I say to myself, what I want it with sauce or no sauce. So when I think about all these different things, I say to myself, okay, at the end of the day, I'm going to come up with a salmon dish, okay? I'm going to come up with a salmon dish and I want some sweetness to it. So I'm going to add teriyaki or I want to add some sort of a soy-based maybe sugar-based, a marinade or a sauce. And maybe because I'm doing that, I'm going to grill it. And because I'm grilling it, maybe I want, uh, it's going to be a lighter dish. So maybe I want 
instead of rice, maybe I want some couscous or whatever it may be. So once I start thinking about all those different elements, I can visualize not only the dish, but I visualize the flavor. So I visualize the flavor and then I visualize the ingredients that I want to have in order to make that dish. So that's the way that I do it. So then I start building the dish. I build it in my mind first, okay? And then after I build everything in my mind, and then I say to myself, okay, I'm going to go into the kitchen and I'm going to start working on it. And then sometimes it tastes like crap, <laughs> not going to work. So then I dump it or, hey, some of these elements are good. Okay, so I'm going to keep some of these different elements. I'm going to move to the next step. I'm going to add this and I'm going to add that, add this, add that. And then I continue to move on. And then at the end of the day, after a couple of trials, sometimes more, I end up with the dish that I want. And then after that is done, then I go to my guys and say, okay, this is the dish that I want to have on the menu. And from beginning to end, how long is that process? Well, it's kind of interesting because sometimes it can take a day. You can have it in a day. Sometimes it'll take two weeks and I got to dump it. Sometimes, you know, I can work on it for two weeks and after that it doesn't work. So I just dump it and then come back to it maybe two, three months later. So, so it, it really depends on my mood at the same time. If I looked at your menu at Roy's January 1 and then I looked at 365 days later, how much has changed? A lot of what, what, what we changed because when we look at the ingredients and we look at all the different things we can get, not everything would always change, but there's certain ingredients that may change because depending on the type of ingredients that we're able to get and the type of ingredients that we want to feature during certain parts of the season, even though Hawaii is pretty much one season, there's certain things that we can get better in certain months, right? So when we utilize those different items, we may have salmon, but and we may have a salmon dish that may stay the same throughout the entire year. We may have another salmon dish that we may change during the season. So taking that into account, a lot of things change. Do you think spam gets a bad rap? I love spam. Believe I mean, to me, <laughs> without spam for breakfast, uh, not worth living sometimes. <laughs> no. I... But, but I like spam a certain way. So when I eat Spam, I like it a little charred on the outside. So, so I, I try to cut it thick enough so where, so where I can I build a little so-called crust, right, on, on both sides of the Spam. So it's, so it's kind of like it has a little crispiness to it, but yet the inside is nice and moist, you know, and then kind of put a little glaze, like a soy glaze on it, you know what I mean, and, and just kind of slice it and, oh, oh no, right? <laughs> About... About a month ago, I interviewed Andrew Zimmern for this. <laughs> he hates Spam. Oh, he hates Spam, yeah. <laughs> I think Spam and maybe Durian are the only two things he yeah, won't yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not a Durian fan, but I do love Spam. So. Do you think that social media has changed the restaurant business? 
Yeah, it really, it really has. Social media has changed a lot, and and it's kind of interesting because at the same time, it's like these uh, reality shows mm-hmm. has really changed chefs, I guess, status, and because hey, listen, at the end of the day, I think these reality TV shows, whether it be Top Chef or Hell's Kitchen or all these different shows that's out there, I think they've done a lot, a lot of good. But I think that it has also given some chefs false, I guess, like like they think that they can go on TV and become a world-renowned chef or they think that it gives them a, a, a status that can't be beat. But what happens a lot is that the chefs, the good ones, they go on TV, they do a lot of great work and they become winners and they can produce great food, right? So they go into the restaurants because a lot of times with, with these TV shows, they get backers. They get people that want to back them up and put them in restaurants and stuff. But owning your own restaurant and being on a TV is two different things. When you own your own restaurants, you know, you have to produce profits. You have to manage people. You have to make sure that at the end of the day, there's great food that the public wants and people leave happy. To go on TV show is one thing. So you get all the national reputation, recognition, and sometimes when they open their own restaurant, they can't they can't cook. They in, can't in cook. the quantity that in the quantity the and the quality, all these different things. So it's it's kind of a false promise that they've been told that they're great, but yet when they get into their own restaurants, they become failures. So that's why it's extremely important that you understand or they understand that, hey, listen, at the end of the game, at the end of the day, the game is if you're going to open a restaurant is you got to take care of your guests and you have to produce great food, timely fashion, and every guest that walks into your restaurant has to leave happy. There's no ifs, ands, and buts. It's What you do on TV is one thing, but what you do in the restaurant kitchen is far more important. So, and along with that, the social media is, the old days used to be, you know, you open a restaurant, you, you make good food. I'm, I'm talking about when I first started in this industry, like 40 years ago, like all the great restaurants 40, 50 years ago, a lot of great restaurants like L'Hermitage, the Escoffier Room, the Rex Restaurant in, in, in LA, La Frances in Chicago, and Wheeling, they make great food. Right, no social media, no nothing. Right, <laughs> yeah, just great food, and people write about it, and people flock. And if you don't do a good job, people stop coming. But anyways, but today it's interesting because social media really attracts different types of people into different restaurants, and it's a different way to get different types of people into your restaurants. So I mean, it's I'm not a pro at it, and I, I, I don't consider myself anywhere near as knowing what I'm doing, but it's, it's interesting how you can attract different types of people into your restaurants at different times. And it's a just different way of approach of getting people to consider you as a dining experience. Have you, you know, changed the menu so that the food photographs better? Have you changed the lighting? Have you done anything like that, like consciously because of social media? I'll be honest with you. For myself, no. Only because... We've been very fortunate because some of the restaurants that we built recently, the lighting has been 
because people tell me, hey, listen, Roy, not not sure if you ever thought about this, but you know what? Your lighting in this restaurant is incredibly good for people to photograph food. <laughs> I said, yeah, I, I knew, I knew about it. <laughs> but oh. you know, it was all done by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's better to be lucky than smart. But, yeah, okay. so I got lucky. I got lucky on all those different things. But yeah, what? It, it's extremely important for people to photograph food today in restaurants. I mean. I would have never thought that when I first started this industry that people, number one, that people would be taking pictures of food at the table, more or less, just taking so much pictures <laughs> and, and making albums and sending them out to different people as they eat. I mean, it's incredible. It doesn't offend you as a chef that what are these people like? And I tell you, uh, uh, no, the answer is no, and I tell you why. Because I'm here to... I'm here to make sure that we provide our guests with memorable experiences because that's all we can do. At the end of the day, if we can't provide our guests with memorable experiences, we're not going to be in business. So we want to make sure that our guests are having a great time when they eat. And, and today, taking pictures and being involved and engaged in a conversation with people that they're not with as they eat, it's part of their dining experience. And that's how they create happiness for themselves. So if they're happy, I'm happy. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> okay. if you're not happy, you're not going to come back. Okay. As simple as that. Okay. Uh, what's your opinion of the food truck movement? Uh, if I would probably do it over again, I would just have a bunch of food trucks running around. Really? <laughs> hey, listen. It's, hey, listen. When you think about the investment that we have to make as a restaurant, building this, I mean, it's, it's extremely ex expensive. It's a huge investment. And, and to create something that we think that could last forever sometimes doesn't. So when you get a food truck, you can give that experience. I'm talking about the end result, okay? I'm talking about the experience to the guest. Sometimes the guest doesn't need the entire 100 yards. They're happy with a little portion of happiness. And you can get that through food truck or you can get without a building and mortar, right? You can just get that through a little something that you do. So, you know, I, I wouldn't go as far. I was kind of exaggerating, but I wouldn't go as far as owning just food trucks. But I think food trucks is a great venue to get people to really show their characteristics and their talent. If, if you were advising someone who wanted to be a chef would you say start as a food truck test it and then go brick and mortar to be honest with you food truck to me th there's two things food truck or to be a kind of a chef to promote yourself to do a chef and do gigs at people's houses those things are pretty cool this netflix thing one time on t on, on, on television or whatever it was or on the airplane where this couple ended up having a uh, what do you call this pop-up in their own apartment but they, what they did was every saturday night they would have enough for 12 you know or 10 seats or something and and they would cook she would take care of the the serving and he would cook and they would have this dinner and that became to kind of became bigger so maybe so once a week became twice a week and sooner or later they decided to, she would quit her own job 
and kind of work into it full time. And they started doing more dinners at home. And, and at the end of the day, they ended up opening a restaurant. Last night, literally last night, I don't know how my wife found it. We went to a home on Diamond Head, Korean woman, and it was a, seven of us and three more people. She has 10 workstations, 10 blocks, 10 knives. 10. We make spam musubi, coconut shrimp, poke. And then we sit down and eat. Oh. And it was a great experience. I, it's much more participation right, and right, conversation. Right, 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 right. I mean, it's really yeah. an event, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's Hollywood, but it was very fun. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah, see, so those are, again, so when it comes to providing memories, if you have a great memory, that can attach itself to you know, the, the next thing that somebody wants to do. So somebody can start off by, by doing these things at homes or whatever it may be, and it can translate to a business later on in the future. And the same time for a guest that goes to these things, they're having a great experience. They go to, they see themselves, hey, wow, maybe if you open a restaurant, you know, I would, I would go to your restaurant, sure. whatever it may be. If you could have dinner with three people, who would they be? Three people. Any wow. three. Alive. <laughs> three people alive. Oh, man. <laughs> That's always a hard one because, I mean... Well, one would be you. I, I, I never had dinner with you, so <laughs> we can fix that. <laughs> I've always, you know, made arrangements for you to have a good. For I've had some great meals <laughs> without you. <laughs> but you know what? I like. I'm a type of guy that that I'm really low key, and I, I like to have fun. So I like to have. I like to eat with people that I that I can have fun with. So. Probably like a, a comedian or something. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. Okay, two more questions for you, all right? So, on Oahu, where does Roy go for breakfast? But it's, it's interesting because most of the time, I go to Co-op Pancake House in Hawaii Kai. Co-op Pancake House yeah, in Hawaii Kai? Yeah, in Hawaii Kai. I usually get there about 6, 6.30, between 6.30 and uh, 7 o'clock. Okay. And I have my Denver omelet, fried rice, or I go to Zippy's Hawaii Kai, <laughs> and I get the takeout, uh, and I still eat it there, but it's a takeout large Simon. For breakfast? For breakfast. Hey, there's Simon for breakfast is the thing. <laughs> or then, or I get the Spam, or I go to uh, Licky Licky Drive-In, Licky Licky Drive-In. <laughs> And when it opens, and I have a large bowl of Simon. Uh, I think I'm two for three on this trip already. The first stop we made was Licky Licky. And the only reason why we went to Licky Licky first is because Koala Moa shut down. Oh, okay. <laughs> broke my heart. Uh, okay, so now where does Roy go for lunch? Lunch is hard because I hardly ever eat lunch. Okay. Yeah, so lunch is something that I, I don't really do because I come to work. So usually what my, 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 my thing is is that I, I, I come to work, so I, I try to have breakfast, a, a small breakfast, because I don't eat breakfast every day. I, I just have breakfast once in a while, maybe once a week or twice a week. So after that, I come to the office. So once I come here, I don't leave. Okay. So that's hard. And then, you know, if you ask me for dinner. Yeah, I am. <laughs> if you ask me for dinner, 
I live in the Diamond Head area, and I don't like to drive too much when it, when it comes late, so I catch Uber and stuff, I ride sharing, so... But I like uh, Izakaya Nombe. Izakaya, Izakaya Nombe. Where is that? Izakaya Nombe is on Olu Street. So it's across from the South Safeway parking, uh, Safeway Shopping Center there on on Kiyomoku. Not Kiyomoku, but uh, what do you call it? Kalakawa. Okay, that's a first. How about... This, it's, it's not Olu Street. But anyways, it's Izakaya Nombe. And it's uh, I, I go there... It's a neighborhood restaurant. So I like, How about Main Street? Is it Main Street? What's the, it's at the edge of the golf course, uh, like across the street from Zippy's on Kapahulu Avenue. Is it Main Street or? Yeah. There's, uh, there's one there. Oh, Kapahulu. You mean yeah, Kapahulu? Yeah. No, no. It's called Main Street or Side Street. Or oh, Side Street. Side Street. Side yes. Street. Yeah. Side Street's a great place. Yeah. Yeah. Side Street is great. Okay. And my last question, I also interviewed Martha Stewart. And so I love to have a little practical tip. So okay. for someone who's cooking, what's like a, a Roy secret, tactical, practical cooking tip? Well, number one for me, whenever I cook, and, and I love to cook, I really enjoy cooking because to me, Cooking and cleaning is very therapeutic to me. And I can stand in a kitchen, whether it be at home or whether it be in a restaurant, and, and I can stand in the kitchen early in the day and make sauces and, and just look at a sauce spot for four or five hours. <laughs> and it brings me so much enjoyment. And it takes the stress out of my life completely. It, and, but then, of course, when production starts, then that's a different story, right? Because you're fighting time and you're, you're just, it's chaotic. But, but, but when I'm cooking, it's very therapeutic in the prepping their stages. But I have to say that, like anything, you have to have a game plan. To me, you have to have a game plan, okay? And the game plan is, is that I write everything down. And so in the very, very beginning, I write things down. For the meal? What I'm going to buy, what I'm going to get, and, and and once I get all of that done, I put all the ingredients all lined up, and then I start cooking, and then as, as important as it is to cooking, cleaning is important. So I clean along the way. So as I take one thing and make one thing dirty, I always wash it. So I don't have a huge mess because a mess to me clogs up your mind. Okay? So I want to make sure that the stove is clean. You don't have all these pots and pans that are laying around. You don't have all these dishes that are dirty that's piling up in your sink that as you cook, you clean, you get it, you get the ingredients, you chop. To me, it's zen. You chop, and then whatever you make, taste. I see so many people make stuff, they don't taste it, and especially home cooks. Home cooks always go by the recipe. You have to understand, recipes are not a Bible. Recipes are a, a guideline 
to what you want to do because depending on the size of the pot depending on whether it's a 10 inch pan or a 7 inch pan it's going to make a difference on how things reduce how things cook depending on how many ingredients you have in a pan whether electric or gas or if it's on 10 or if it's on 2 all of these things will change the outcome so you can't go by recipes use it as a guideline but you have to use your heart and you have to use your eyes to see what's happening right so you see all of that and then and it's you got to make it joyful <laughs> <laughs> it can't be a task right even when i cook for a thousand people it's not a task i, I enjoy it it's my life it's fun right so when you get all of that and you cook and clean and you taste everything and you make sure that you're washing things and adding things you taste then it becomes enjoyable because what happens is it's the journey that you're on so instead of start and finish it's you're carving your way from a to z so you're cooking you're tasting you're adding things you're looking you see things as you keep on going you get the final result and when you get the final result you say hey that was a great journey instead of just speeding through the mountains and everything else and you get there and you go hey i'm here and then you go ah right but enjoy that ride okay. man <laughs> if i went to roy's house in diamond head do I see your kitchen? Is your kitchen wolf ranges, sub-zero no, refrigerator? Is this no. like amazing architectural digest no, kitchen? No, no. My kitchen is very, very simple. Matter of fact, I bought the house and I never remodeled it. <laughs> <laughs> and then whatever I want to use, my wife always tells me, put it in the garage, put it in the closet. I'll take something out, put it back. Don't leave it there. <laughs> really? Does she ever cook? What, matter of fact, she doesn't really cook. No, nah, she may cook, but last night she was making mochi for the New Year's. For New Year's, yeah. Yes. So she was, you know, she had pounding the, the whole thing. No, she puts it in the machine. <laughs> <laughs> I make food. You know, my whole thing is about. You don't need expensive gadgets to make great food. It helps to have certain machineries and certain technology, of course. But to me, what makes a great meal is your heart, yeah. your heart, and it's you. Why do people think, well, there's two ways. To me, my mother and my father they both passed away, but their food was the greatest. And, and why is it so great? A lot of love. Yeah? A lot of love, a lot of feeling into the food. And, and, but some people go, hey, my mom and my dad's cooking were the worst. <laughs> <laughs> my, my mom made the best taco on in the world. I can tell <laughs> See, I mean, there's certain things that, yeah, your parents make that you really love and you say to yourself. And, and some of it is because it's great, because it tastes great. But some of it is because there was so much feeling into it. And it just makes that dish so much better. I, can, I, I remember a lot of great things that my dad made. My dad would make stew, beef stew, because his beef stew was more Hawaiian, more local style. Tomatoes, broth, and he may thicken it up, potatoes. Tough stew meat that, more, that yeah, soften yeah. up, yeah. <laughs> but then 
but he he had that he would make that first big pot big pot and then the next day he turned that damn thing into a curry <laughs> <laughs> he went from the stew to a curry yeah, he just throw the, the that curry japanese curry blocks in there curry paste in there right Curry my, the next day, man. It was it was it was great. <laughs> when when my mom made stew, which I was gonna say is also the greatest stew I've ever had, it was a big treat for us if she made dumplings out of biscuit and put it oh, on top of the stew. Really? Okay. That was like a big deal. Mm. Those are the days. I'm from Kalihi Valley, so <laughs> Yeah, okay. That's that's great stuff, man. <laughs> See, so so there's 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 foods that you always remember as a kid that your parents made. And it's one of these things that are just go-to foods. And my mother made like this. She was from Okinawa, so she made these green beans with bacon. And she had eggs in there. And she had miso in there. Man, that Did she make was... donuts? Andagi. She used to make andagi, man. Fry that damn thing. <laughs> It'd be hard as hell. You <laughs> <laughs> can throw it against the wall and crack the wall. <laughs> but it was great, right? It yeah. tasted great, you know what I mean? But those are things that you never forget. Oh, man. I know. Oh, my mother would I make know. the andagi and like, oh. I hope, <laughs> I hope my kids talk about something I make for them like this someday. <laughs> my dad had this teriyaki thing, teriyaki mix that he put in his this jar and the base of it he made like when I was probably really, really young. And when I left home, it was still the same really? same pot. Like yeast? <laughs> I mean, it just... No, it just what he would do is he, he would keep on adding to it. And once in a while, he'd, he'd dump it in a pot and, and bring it to a boil and stuff. But that damn thing, he kept it going for like 16, 17 years, man. <laughs> But that was his teriyaki sauce. So you dunk your meat in there and chicken and you grill it. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> My happiest memories were going to Alawana Beach Park with a little hibachi and beef teriyaki skewers. Yeah, right on. I mean, with my mom's musubis. Oh. <laughs> my mom's musubis, which she hand-shaped into perfect triangles. Not one of these plastic stamp right, jobs. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Just all hand, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, my God. With ume. With ume. Oh, <laughs> great. And her takawan. <laughs> and takawan. Because my mom used to always, when I was a kid, we go on field trips or something, and my mom would make me sandwiches and Japanese white bread. She'd make me tonkatsu sandwiches, whether it be with, you know, the pork tonkatsu sandwiches. And then she'd make me a musubi. And then she'd make me fried chicken. <laughs> I hope that Roy and I didn't local boy out too much for you. When two people from Hawaii start talking about local food, it's hard to stop. I hope you notice that Roy, unlike Andrew Zimmern, likes spam. The next time you're in Hawaii, if we ever fly again, you have to grab a meal at one of Roy's restaurants. Here's what you should order. Big Eye Tuna Poke, Szechuan Spiced Pork Ribs, Blackened Island Ahi, Roy's Melting Hot Chocolate Souffle. That you have to order in the middle of your meal because it takes a long time to make that. The most important lesson that I learned from this interview is that you should clean as you cook. That's my new goal. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. 
Mahalo to Jeff C. and Pig Fitzpatrick, who are the melting hot chocolate souffles of podcasting. Be healthy, be safe. Mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.